The Ram Dhamma's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 8, Harry McGee meets Annie Sinclair. McGee, tired and disheveled, arrived at the Palisades restaurant well ahead of Annie Sinclair. He was frazzled by what happened in the roadside area just hours before. Something was terribly wrong if the computer could not explain it. He took out his notebook page, studying it briefly, and then he jammed it back in his pocket. And he couldn't understand what it all meant. The well-groomed Annie Sinclair, wearing a light brown coat, stood in front of the restaurant. She spotted McGee at the bar and picked up her briefcase. Her fluffy blonde hair bounced about her shoulders as she crossed the room. McGee thought she looked too contrived. Her clothes were too new. He was deeply suspicious of who this lady really was. Important news? She asked with a wide smile. Miss Sinclair, you're early, said McGee, pushing the page back in his pocket. I wasn't expecting you for another half hour. You're just like me, she said, setting her briefcase on the floor. What's that? We're both early. Yeah, right, he said as he looked over to the side tables. Let's go over there and have some breakfast. Sounds good to me, she said, and they moved to the window table. Let me help you with your coat, said McGee, lifting it and hanging it on the hook. Pretty suit. Thanks, she smiled, gazing at the brown suit. I'm glad you like it. You sound Ivy League. University of Utah is hardly Ivy League. No insult intended, Miss Sinclair, he said as the waiter came over to the table. Can I take your order? French, French toast. toast, they said at the same time. That's a double, smiled McGee. Yes, sir, said the waiter, writing down the request. You know, she said, looking into his eyes, the senator specifically said that I can follow up leads on the Ram Dhamma and the space program without going into the field, which would put the senator in a very precarious position with the issue of church and state. Doesn't he want any information? Asked McGee. No, no, that's not it. I had a long night last night. Oh? She asked. Yeah. That's not important right now. I did, however, listen to a file about our fair-haired boy. The Ram Dhamma. <laughs> she laughed. What's the matter? Your characterization, fair-haired boy, just the opposite of what he is, trying to resume a more serious tone. Sorry, I didn't mean that to be insulting. McGee smiled. Well, I never knew anything about this guy, but the money and the power. He's like a head of state. Thirty billion dollars at the last count, she said. And that's just the reported wealth. Totally unbelievable. I know it is. Let me ask you this. Has he ever been involved in other things? Well, he was a professor at... Right, right, I know that. I've seen his face before. He's been known to change people's minds, McGee. His eyes are hypnotic. My client is, oh yes, your client. The reason for this meeting, she said, raising her brows. He's been taken away, but he still is my client, Miss St. Clair. Please, please, stop them, Miss St. Clair. Okay, Annie, said the tired McGee. My client, he was framed, or so it appears. It's very complicated. You think the Ram Dama framed him, she asked as the waiter brought steaming plates of French toast. 
They were silent as he set down the plates and the coffee. When he had left, McGee leaned forward. Look, Annie, I haven't figured this out, but I think he was framed. Let's bring this back a bit. Framed for what? Ah, laughed McGee as he thought of the enormity of Hutchinson's charges and the red metal. You won't believe me. Try me, she said, cutting the French toast. Hutchinson, my client, is a big deal with the space agency. If this were 40 or 60 years ago, he'd probably be a hero. But nobody's heard of him. He's been testing new spacecrafts for five years. The premier pilot of the agency. See, they put him in charge of the shipment of a newly refined and classified metal, simply called the red metal. It's the strongest thing anyone's ever produced. Well, I can't say I've ever heard of that either, she confessed and kept eating. The shipment was worth billions, but somebody hijacked the ship. Everyone on board except Hutchinson was killed with some sort of neck-breaking hold. What happened to Hutchinson? They planted him in a Boston hotel room. They framed him. They said he tried, and in fact he did, to sell some of the red metal for cash. They claim he has the rest of it hidden somewhere. Hutchinson escaped and came to me. The SIA traced him to my apartment. They gave me $8,000 and a flight on the short-range transport. If you keep your mouth shut, she surmised. Right, right, here I am, not shutting up. I want to know what the hell's going on. How do you think this affects my investigation? I'll get to that, said McGee, gulping the coffee. Before he was knocked out on the ship, Hutchinson learned a phrase shouted by the intruders. I found, Annie, that that phrase is part of the worldwide church chant. What? She asked, putting down the fork. That's totally absurd. You think it makes sense to me? What would the Ram Dama be doing up in space? He does have spacecrafts. They're just suborbital ships used for traveling around the globe. This sounds like a fluke to me. I think you're being had, McGee. Being had? The man offered me everything he had in order to find the truth. I've got SIA men guarding my apartment as we speak. Then they must know you left. Well, no, not yet. But they will. Point being, I have to find out just how the Ram Dhamma was involved, if at all. What's your real interest in this? She smiled. Money? Finding your client? All right. I'll level with you. It's the money. Mostly the money. I want to know where I can find the Ram Dhamma's headquarters, his base of operations. I would strongly advise against asking any questions. The holy children, uh, even the wanderers, would be all over you. They are ruthlessly fanatical. And if you're thinking about getting any records or readouts, forget it. It's impossible. Then there is a central place. She nodded and drank the coffee. Phoenix, she told him. Then she raised her brows. What do you think you're going to do? Go down there and just get a signed confession from the Ram Dhamma? I'm serious about this. I don't think you realize this really did happen. Hutchinson was pretty beat up. The SIA has been known to do that, she said, thinking for a few moments. However, I can't see how some obscure phrase, Banachuknaskam. Yes, I recognize it. Why would someone 
hijacking a ship in deep space just to yell those words. Well, that's what I'm trying to find out, said the exasperated McGee. Now what about this headquarters? It's a 50-story building shaped like a thin glass pyramid. Beautiful, reflective green glass. The locals hate it. I guess the Ram Dhamma had it constructed in front of a well-known mountain. Camelback, I think they call it. And they have records within the headquarters. That's the temple. Yes, they do. The upper portion is devoted to meditating. There's a small library and rooms just to think about the Ram Dhamma. It's the extreme lower portion where any records would be kept. We've tried to get in there, but computer or handwritten? Computer, as far as I know. Oh, really? He smiled. Computers. <laughs> if I could get in there. Get in there? That would be, well, <laughs> impossible. They have enforcers all over the place. They'd kill you at the drop of a hat. They've been known to cut off the blood to the brain in a matter of seconds before breaking the neck. You're not listening to me. I just told you how the men in the spaceship died. This is incredible. That cinches it. The Ram Dhamma was involved in that hijacking. I don't know how, but the evidence is pretty incriminating. It would mean many things, McGee, she said. Exactly. That's why I'm getting my pal Baker and heading for Phoenix. You'd be taking a big chance. These people don't mess around, McGee. I thought I made that clear. The enforcers can only enforce, Ms. Sinclair, when they have the advantage. I tend to take away that advantage. You're pretty confident, aren't you? I know what can be done. It might take some time and elaborate planning, but I know I can get in there. You sound like you're going to do whatever you want. Just let me go on the record telling you to let the committee handle this. We can run a check through the SIA. No, please, don't run anything. It would alert them. You're asking me to withhold from this committee. Look, Annie, when I first thought of coming up here to meet you, I thought we could trade some information. I thought you might be able to help me. I'm sorry. The only thing you've told me is that there are records in the temple. I'll be in contact. If I find out anything down there, I'll be in contact. It only help your position with the senator. Condoning break-ins won't help my position. Just put that out of your mind. I'll contact you when I find something. Oh, you can contact me anyways, she said, making eye contact. I have every intention of doing that, Sunshine. Good, I'd like that, she replied. Very nice to meet you, Annie. I'll be getting back to you. Goodbye, he said, holding her hand briefly. McGee watched her follow him out of the restaurant and sensed an unusual attraction between them an attraction between positives. There's no way she could know it, but somehow she might have intuitively known that they would see each other again. Chapter 4 the best laid plans. The hotel was a sleazy, according to McGee, run-down rat trap. The walls had not been painted since the last century and the roof leaked. McGee sat on a black-striped mattress, 
talking in an old-style audiophone that more than likely preceded the hotel itself. He seemed energetic in the midst of extensive plans, munching on a turkey sandwich as he talked with Effie back in Worcester. Will you listen for one second, Effie? Yeah, listen to you? You had me call you from a public phone at 8 o'clock in the morning to some place in Phoenix, Arizona. There's no video. I have no idea what's going on. Just forget about your questions. I need another 4,000. Why, I've had SIA men following me for the past week. They've torn up your apartment, McGee, to shreds. Then Baker tells me you have an authorized removal of funds from the business. Then tap into my personal savings, dammit. You have the codes. Just get it and put it in the mail. They'll trace any direct transaction to Phoenix and do it late at night when they think you're in bed. Is Baker with you? Yes, he's been down here for a few days. Never mind him. Send the money to Horace Winfield, P.O. Box 57, Mesa, Arizona. Mesa? It's right next to Phoenix. Don't worry about it. Can you do it, Effie? I don't like this at all. It's risky, Harry. Fighting the SIA? I have it all planned. If I have the money, I can put those plans into action. I always worry about your plans, especially this one. Thank you, Effie. Will you get back to me? Yes, I will. Well, good luck, Harry, for what you have planned. Goodbye, Effie. He said slowly and hung up the phone. McGee had lured Bake into the plan by promises of an untold fortune if they located the red metal. McGee had spent the better part of the day planning out the Phoenix operation. He had used Bake's contacts to hire people to come in and protest groups to create a diversion out front. Other contacts from Bake were able to get military supplies to pull off this mission to get into the computers inside the building. Someone knocked on the door. He looked over, wondering for a few seconds who could be out there. Getting up, he walked slowly toward the half-painted white door. He tightened his throat, lowering his voice as he spoke. Yeah. Mr. McGee, it's us. He heard one of the men he had hired. Then he heard Baker coming up the stairs yelling about using a coded knock. You gotta use a coded knock, man. He pulled back the chain, unlocked the door, and let them in. I told him to knock four times. Slowly, said Baker as he walked by them. He was wearing jeans and a cut-off gray sweatshirt. Everything go all right, Bake? asked McGee. Yeah, everything's just great, he said as he headed for the refrigerator and pulled out a beer. You guys want a beer? I'll have one, said the taller of the two men, a man with a dark mustache and a hawk nose. Here said Bake, giving him the bottle. What about you, Rick? He asked the younger man with the baby face. No, 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 thanks. So, Baker, what's going on with the protesters? Asked McGee. I'll tell you what's going on. Those people want to be paid, and I can't say I blame them. We're running out of money. More money's on the way, Bake, McGee told him. He went back to the bed and sat down. Yeah, yeah, that's what I told them. They didn't think it was true. He said as he walked over and looked down at McGee. This whole thing is costing you a mint, buddy. He said as he drank more of the beer and leaned against the wall. What about the gas? It's coming. The guy will be ready with the canisters tomorrow morning. The cost is more than we figured, too. McGee pulled back the thin celery-colored curtains. 
He looked across the city toward the Rusk Mountain called Camelback. Directly in front of the mountain, however, was the pointed green skyscraper, headquarters for the worldwide church in America. He stared at it, envisioning exactly what he was going to do. The blood surged through his veins as he thought about it. Hey, McGee, called Baker. McGee dropped the curtain and looked back. I think it might be worth our while to go over this one more time. Oh? Yeah, yeah, said the hawk-nosed man. Rick and I want to know exactly what will be required of us. Right, right, right. Fred is right, said Rick. Since we have no idea why we're going in there... You're getting paid, aren't you, said Baker. It's all you have to know about the whys, and it's for rehearsing it, he added, looking at McGee. All right, all right, agreed McGee. He got up and went over to the closet. He opened the door and pulled out a small suitcase. As he set it on the table, they could see it wasn't a suitcase at all, but a computer terminal. Where did you get that? Rented, as the power came on and he inserted a disc. An actual blueprint of the building, the worldwide temple, came on the screen. I won't ask you where you got that, smiled Baker. Aerial surveillance, a widescreen antenna in orbit produces an inner image using microwaves. The computer enhances the things forming the green and blue lines we see on the screen. That, of course, is unless the building has a shielded system. I'm surprised they didn't have that. Yeah, sometimes when you get too powerful, you start to think you're invincible, said Baker. You got all the floors in there? Yeah. Now listen. The red areas indicate the basic guard positions. That's just a computer judgment, though. Those warm spots on the screen, body temperature, are the strategic locations. The yellow area on the lower floor is the computer section. I've tried tapping into them. They do have defenses in that area. The only way to get into the computers is to physically go to the lower floors. But we simply can't just walk into the temple. The diversion? The diversion, answered McGee. We set up tonight. This is where I'm confused, said Rick doesn't concern you. Just take care of it. Small launching grenades. Selected grenades will be attached to selected points along the glass. They won't even be seen. And all they will do is shatter the glass and produce large quantities of smoke. Enough to start panic inside the temple and clear it out. That's when we start the other gas down below, said Baker. Only after they've cleared out. That's where the protesters come in. All this week they'll continue protesting against the church. Right. I saw the visionaries come out yesterday to yell at them, said Fred. Exactly, said McGee. Our people have been told to get rough. That will make sense to the church when this is all over. Casting the blame? asked Rick. At least until we get away. Now, when we go in on Thursday morning, we'll all be wearing the orange robes of the Seekers. Bake and I will be wearing the same thing. You two will enter through the Haywood Street entrance at exactly 8.15. We'll be in the meditation room. You'll have your guns and canisters under the robes like I told you before. It's just a matter of relaxing until the first explosion, said McGee. Won't be long, five minutes. And remember, the first explosion will be the loudest. There'll be another explosion 30 seconds later. That'll send them running. They'll all think the whole SIA is after them, smiled McGee, quite proud of the plan. It's right after that second explosion during the mass confusion is when you plant the canisters behind the desk. And then it's a matter of minutes before the place will be filled with thick smoke. Even the enforcers can't breathe tear gas. Wow, what about the protesters? 
asked Fred, stroking his mustache. They'll be gone at 8.10. We'll all rendezvous at 8.20. That's when the third explosion takes place. We'll enter this staircase, he said, pointing to the screen. This is a very tricky point. I can't guarantee everyone will have been cleared out of that bottom area. We may have to throw more canisters down the stairwell, said Baker, gesturing with the beer bottle. That blueprint tells me exactly where to go. I thought it would just be guesswork. No guesswork, said McGee. Be prepared. I want to avoid anyone getting seriously hurt. Even with the explosions, they're designed for shock value, not to produce injuries. There'll be at least ten more, just to keep everyone on their toes. While we're below in the computer area. By the time the last one goes off, we'll be long gone with what we came for. How do we get out? asked Rick. Just follow us, Rick. Don't worry about it. Now, he said, looking across the city toward the temple. Just a matter of setting it all in action. Bake sat back on the couch. He stared at McGee until McGee finally caught his eye. What is it, Bake? So you're telling me you're going to find out where that red metal is. And then, somehow, somehow you're going to cash in on that red metal. Bake, that's exactly what I'm going to do. The Best Laid Plans, Part 2 At least eight SIA men were still inside McGee's Worcester apartment. Very carefully over the past few days, they had been examining even the smallest tidbit. That was the easy part. Everything pertaining to Hutchinson was gone, erased by the computer, probably by McGee's instructions. In fact, they had experts working on just gaining access to the computer system. It would be a long and tedious procedure to get the computer to answer their questions. Hernandez, called the gray-haired man as he came through the front door. Yeah, what is it, Chuck? He asked. The McGee case. The McGee case, formerly the Hutchinson case, had drained him of all his energy. Bad news, he said as he approached. The locals. We just got wind of a report that the locals are starting to ask questions about McGee. Damn, complained Hernandez. He had his fill of surprises. Running his fingers up his forehead and through his hair, he shook his head. You'll have to check with General Kellogg. I know that, Chuck. I know that. I just can't believe we stood like idiots in that hallway for three days, he said as Chuck pushed the orange video phone button. Forget it. We'll have to use the one in the hallway. McGee knocked out that phone, too. The rest of you men, prepare to move out, he said as he walked to the door. How did the locals get wind of all this? Haven't we got enough troubles? In a few minutes, Hernandez was standing in front of the screen next to the hallway windows. His stomach churned as he waited for Kellogg's rigid face. The general was in his office with a special forces officer, a man with a neck as wide as a telephone pole. Where the hell are you now, Hector? He asked in a belligerent manner. Hernandez was coming to resent being talked to like that, and he just looked at the general for a few minutes. He could see the large brown hanger outside the window. I'm outside of McGee's apartment, General. If you remember, he had the computer short out the phone. Can we talk? He asked, as if he could only see a small portion of the stocky man's uniform. Of course you can talk, said Kellogg as he moved in front of the camera. See, it's only Sergeant Johnson here with me. Hello, Craig. Good to see you, Hector. 
Never mind the social amenities, Hector. Have you tapped that damn computer yet? No, sir. We're moving out immediately. Haven't been able to crack it yet. He smiled, probably admiring McGee's expertise. Hernandez could see that the rest of his statement hit him hard. Moving out? Who gave such an order? I did. And since when are you... General! The local authorities have started sniffing all around here. Well, son of a bitch. He said, looking at Johnson. I bet it was that old bag, Effie. She must have been in contact with McGee. We watched her from the time she left her house in the morning until she came home at night. Her phone has been tapped. Nothing. Then we should have put a round-the-clock surveillance on her. Yes, sir. That McGee, he's very clever. Very clever indeed. Smiled Kellogg as if he were playing a game. We'll have to outmaneuver him. General, let me, let me put this in perspective. Don't tell me what to do, Hector. You get your men the hell out of there. That's good. Shall we continue to search the city? Yes, yes, you do that. He said, looking right into Hernandez's eyes. I want that son of a bitch brought to me. Find Harry McGee. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ramdamas Kingdom, Who Is He Who Commands the Masses? Produced by Fitton Theater of the Words.